Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Guy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, we're going to open our Bibles in a minute. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. You can turn to Psalm 103 as we prepare to open God's Word. First thing I want to do is thank you for your prayers and your support for our Myanmar ministry. I returned from Myanmar on Tuesday evening, and um, it was an incredible trip. In fact, I categorize it as one of the most meaningful and difficult weeks of my life. We have a couple of uh, photos. Uh, first photo here is a picture of the beloved Pastor Nopum, who is our partner in ministry over in Myanmar. Just an amazing guy and a true inspiration. Next slide is uh, from inside our class. We had 65 students, including pastors and ministry leaders, with us. And this is one of the reasons why it was so meaningful to me, is because of the eagerness uh, that these people have to learn, to grow, to have an impact in their country for Christ. Some of these folks had traveled for two days by bus from the remotest regions in Myanmar to be with us. And so just to know that and to hear some of their stories and the places they're from and the challenges that are represented in those places, I mean, it made it extremely meaningful just to be there. Now, the other thing was that we taught the entire book of Exodus in five days, six hours a day of intense, intense teaching. And you know, when we started this thing, after the first hour, I thought, this is a terrible mistake. <laughs> this is not going to work. It's through a translator, and um, it was kind of rough going. And then I thought, no, we have to press on, and because this is going to be a gift to these folks. Many of them had never read the book of Exodus before, and but they're really familiar with the New Testament. And so... Um, we just pressed on, and at the end of the week, Pastor Nopum surveyed everyone and came back and he reported. This is the report that came back. We're so grateful because now we understand the book of Exodus, and we understand how it reveals to us God's heart and the gospel of salvation through Christ. And now we know what we have to do. That's what Pastor Nopum said. Now we know what we have to do. And I thought, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Because they were not just filled with information, but with the sense of purpose of God wanting to impact the world around them for Christ. And so that was incredibly, incredibly meaningful. Now, it was also one of the most difficult weeks of my life because on the morning of day two, I got sick. And I basically didn't eat for three days. And on the evening of day two, I was in my hotel room shaking uncontrollably um, with sickness. And I was like really out of it. And so I was thinking as I was shaking uncontrollably, this isn't what I envisioned for this trip. Um, so that was kind of hard. And I got bailed out, I got rescued because Darren came from Imprint Church in Seattle, and we have actually a photo here of, of Darren, who I've known for 21 years, he used to be on staff here, 
And that's Darren preaching in Nopum's church. Now, that's the church still that's on top of his house that's currently being eaten by termites, which raises some questions about being on the roof. But (laughs) you just put that out of your mind. I actually was looking out the window behind me and, and calculating how hard it would be to jump onto the roof of the building next door. But uh, you saw all of the people in that, in that room, and there were people outside the door who couldn't get in, who were listening outside on the stairwell out there. And so it was amazing. And Darren showed up, and he came on at midnight of day two. So that one day that I just sort of pressed through, and then I went back and I was shaking in the hotel room. Darren shows up at midnight thinking, you know, he's going to get the soft immersion into this role. And I'm like, Darren, you're on. I cannot show up tomorrow, so you just go. You're doing the whole thing. So Darren went the next day on day three, and he did the whole day by himself, and that was amazing. And then I sort of rallied on day four and five and was able to also partner in that work. And so um, day two, I was thinking, I can't believe this is happening. And day seven, I'm thinking that was one of the most meaningful weeks of my life. And uh, I want you to keep praying for Myanmar. Pray for the ministry. Uh, we have big things in store. Nopum and, and, uh, and we strategize together about building out this ministry, training more leaders, impacting Myanmar, and I'm super excited about it. At one point in our study of Exodus, I asked the students to reflect back on their life. And I asked the question, Can you think of a time in your life experience, in your past somewhere, where you can now see that God was at work in your life, but at the time, maybe you didn't recognize it. But now, in hindsight, as you look back at your history, you see that had to be the hand of God. I recognize God at work in my life. And it was amazing. And there were many stories the one story that struck me in particular was from a woman. I believe her name is Num Num. That's her nickname. She's the director of the Myang Mia boarding home, which our church supports the children that are there. And she told the story that when she was a little girl, her house burned down. Now, it's easy to imagine how houses can burn down in Myanmar because in rural areas, the houses are basically just bamboo huts. Her house burned down when she was a little girl, and her family lost everything that they owned. They just, they lost everything. She said it was incredibly difficult, but that as she looks back at her life, she recognizes now that it was God's mercy for her because it was that experience that shaped in her heart a compassion for suffering people and suffering children. She said, I would not be doing what I'm doing today in basically directing with one other helper, um, 65, I think it's 65 children in this home, and giving her life to doing that. And she, with tears flowing down, she said, I recognize now that the hand of God was even in that. And I went, wow, that's so cool. (laughs) So I want to ask you this morning, what about you? If you search your memory, if you go back and you think about your life experience... Can you think of times in your life where God was at work and maybe you didn't even recognize it at the time, 
But looking back now in memory, you recognize the hand of God. I think one of the truest truths of our Christian life is that we experience God in remembrance. You know, it was Augustine who said this, and, and it's, it's an amazing thought. He said in, in the 10th book of his Confessions, he said, we really only can experience God in our memory. And the reason for that is because time is always passing, and even what I just said to you is already passed. <laughs> right? <laughs> you can only experience God in your memory. I just said that like 30 seconds ago. So time is flowing through, and we always want to experience God in, in the present, but the present is always becoming the past very quickly. And so what he said was that for a Christian, one of the best things you can do is to search your memory, to go back and to find God in your own history, in what God has done for you. Don't take it lightly. Understand that as you do that, you actually experience the truth of God in your life and what God has done for you. And so that brings us to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a psalm of God-centered memory. And it is one of the most powerful psalms and positive and beautiful psalms in all of Scripture. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Psalm 103, all 22 verses. Can you believe that? Because it's so awesome, and many of you know Psalm 103 because it's a favorite. People love it because it's so positive. It's so amazing. In fact, there, there isn't one negative line in Psalm 103. It's pretty much all positive. There may be one kind of sobering verse, but we'll, we'll see about that. Let me read this to you. Just, just listen. Let the Word of God bless you. Psalm 103, Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Isn't that a great song? So it it begins and ends with this phrase, Bless the Lord. Now, you might have noticed when you read this psalm that this psalm is not exactly a prayer. And the last time that I preached from Psalm 16, I also pointed out that psalm isn't exactly a prayer either. There's some prayers in it. One of the things that's interesting about the book of Psalms, the book of prayer, is that not everything is a prayer in the book of Psalms. And even though we're studying Psalms to learn how to pray, how to talk to God, I think we have to be aware that there's a function for these Psalms that aren't exactly prayers. In fact, we might think of a Psalm like this, Psalm 103, more as a pathway to prayer, sort of an entrance to prayer, a call to prayer. It's like David's giving himself a pep talk. (coughs) Excuse me, still recovering. David is giving himself a pep talk for prayer, to praise, to bless the Lord. And the pathway to praise, the pathway to heartfelt prayer is actually memory. It is remembrance. And so this positive, amazing, beautiful psalm calls us to prayer. But this psalm can also be uh, misunderstood easily, I think. Because when we read this psalm, and it's so positive, it seems to be giving us just general principles of God's blessing for our lives. It's almost like a bullet point list of, you know, what God will do in our lives. And so we hear this psalm often as a promise for the future more than a memory of the past. But to hear it that way, I think, is to misunderstand this psalm. First and foremost, this psalm is about memory. It's about remembrance. And so here's the first truth of Psalm 103. The best path to the prayer of faith and a life of praise is the path of God-centered memory. That's the way in. And you find that right at the beginning of the psalm. So take a look at Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And that's the leading theme. Don't forget. And so if the phrase says don't forget immediately we're being pointed to the past to search our memory 
for something. And verses 3 through 5 give us the actual memory. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now that's, most people, that's their favorite part of the song. You go, I like that list. That's a good list, right? But if we hear that list simply as a generic list of promises without any particular context to go with it, I think it really dilutes the power of this psalm. This is key. Verses 3 through 5 do not give us a bullet point list of general promises. What they do give us is someone's true life experience with God. This is someone's memory. This is something that was experienced by someone in their life. And they're going through their memory and they're going, this is what God did and this is what he did and this is what, this is what God does because this is exactly what they personally experienced. And it almost sounds like a life that's rising from the ashes. Do you notice the low to high kind of progression that appears? Look at it, verse 3. Who forgives your iniquity and heals your diseases kind of starts on the low end of things, right? But then it builds, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's low to high stuff. It's like you start in the depths of sin and you end up soaring like an eagle. How awesome is that? Isn't that powerful? You know, eagles soar on thermal currents. <laughs> it's like the sound of that. They soar on thermal currents. If you see an eagle and it's walking on the ground, it sort of lurches back and forth and it's all awkward. Looks like it can barely walk. But man, you launch that thing and it just, it just goes. One of the coolest things I've ever seen was up in the Key Peninsula in Washington on a sunny day, I saw a bald eagle in an aerial dogfight with a hawk. And it was like right there. And it was amazing. It was like a territorial thing. And this bald eagle is just soaring on thermal currents like they do. And this hawk comes into the frame. And the hawk is like, you're not doing this. And the hawk goes above it and then dive bombs it. And th this fight ensued. And these two birds are soaring on the currents and everything. And what was so cool was the eagle would watch the hawk dive bombing. And right before it would strike it, the eagle would flip over and just do this. It's like, you want me? You want this? Come on. <laughs> and this went on for like 15 minutes. And I went, that is so cool. In the Bible, soaring like an eagle is an image. It's a metaphor for a life of faith and strength and renewal. And in this low to high kind of progression, it begins in the depths of sin, but it ends with an image like that. And you need to understand, this isn't just a general principle. This is someone's real life memory. And 
We believe we know whose memory that is, and it is David. It is King David. Why? Well, because the psalm says it's a psalm of David. <laughs> so that makes it pretty clear, right? And it's really important, too, because as psalms go along, you may not know this, but in the book of Psalms, the front end of the book of Psalms is loaded with psalms of David. So you get the first books. Psalms is divided into books, and you get the first books, one and two especially. It's like of David, of David, of David. It's like over and over again. Now we're in what's called book four of the book of Psalms. And in book four, uh, there are only two psalms attributed to David, and this is one of them. All of a sudden, David pops up again. And there's an important reason for that. But this is David's experience. Now, I understand that Pastor Adam gave a wonderful sermon on how to talk to God about sin. And he used Psalm 51, which is a psalm of David, which basically is David confessing to God his experience in the aftermath of the worst sin of his life, sin of adultery, sin of murder, and he's been convicted by the prophet Nathan. He's convicted by God. He comes to the breaking point. He confesses his sin to God. And there's an amazing phrase in Psalm 51. I want you to look at it. Psalm 51 and verse 8. Uh, verses 7 and 8, actually. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So that's about being cleansed from sin. But look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The bones that you have broken. It's like forgiveness and healing. Healing. But which bones have been broken? It's none. He didn't have any broken bones. He's using this as an expression to talk about the devastation of sin in his own life. His experience was an experience of being broken. The healing that he needed was not just a physical healing. It actually was larger than that. It was an internal healing. He felt utterly crushed in his life. And God did forgive him. And God did heal him from the inside out. That was David's experience. And Psalm 51 records that. Now here's David later in life in Psalm 103. And David is saying, forget not. Remember this amazing experience that you've had. And how you've gone from low to high how your life has been restored, renewed like the eagles. Now, if you remember something like that, then it's going to move you on the path of prayer and praise. And that's what this psalm is really all about. Now, not all of us have so dramatic a testimony as David. You can search your memory and you can say, well, I have some memories, but they're not quite that intense as the memory of David. We all have different kind of degrees of experience in terms of our experience 
with God. I've heard some amazing testimonies in my life. As a young pastor, one of the first people that I ever encountered was a guy who, who met me. Someone said, you need to go talk to this pastor. He'll help you. And this guy was really messed up. And so I sat down with this guy in a coffee shop. And he was a menacing-looking guy. And he looked at me like dark clouds came across his face. He said, okay, Mr. Christian Pastor, I got one question for you. Am I going to go to hell because I took out a contract to have my ex-wife murdered? I went, they didn't teach us about this in Bible college. <laughs> that was the opening line, you know. This guy was so messed up. I had an office on a second, second story building and I was in there one night at about 11 o'clock at night. It was like a Saturday night. I was getting ready for the sermon the next day. And it's raining outside, and it's dark, and it's 11 o'clock at night. And I, I hear outside some noise outside at the window. And I look outside, and here's this guy's face at the window. He'd climbed up the drain pipe of this building. He's, he's hanging by the drain pipe, looking in the window, going, help me, help me. Okay. Now, that guy had a testimony. I'm telling you, he had a testimony. He came to Jesus in a big way, all right? Great testimony. I love that. I heard some great testimonies at the baptism, at the last baptism. Those are amazing testimonies. Okay, but there's other people that they go, well, my testimony isn't like that. When I was in kindergarten, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I heard a great message from the children's choir, you know, from the children's pastor, and I repented of my sins, and I've been a Christian ever since, all right? So we all have different degrees on a spectrum of, of our testimony. That's exactly why Psalm 103 presses back further in the past beyond David. That's why it goes to the collective memory of God's people to take a look at, at a memory that everyone should be able to read and relate and understand. And so take a look at it in Psalm 103, and now we're going to look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Now, when you read that, you go, okay, what are we talking about now? Where did we go? This is a psalm of David, and we, that was kind of David's experience, which was awesome. But now why is he going back further? Because what he's talking about is the book of Exodus, of which I just spent many hours in. <laughs> he goes to the book of Exodus. Take a look at it. What does it say? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Who is oppressed? God's people, children of Israel, Egypt. They were slaves. They were radically oppressed. And God did a righteous, amazing work of delivering them, and he used Moses as the leader to do that. And so it says, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Mighty acts in the book of Exodus. Parting of the Red Sea. Greatest miracle in the Old Testament. So all of a sudden, this psalm is going, let's go back further in our memory. Let's see what the testimony is of God's people. And then he says in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And it goes on. Now, he's brought us in the story of Exodus to Exodus 34. He's quoting directly from Exodus 34. He's fast-forwarded now past the mighty acts, past the Red Sea and all those miracles, and he's brought us to Mount Sinai. He's brought us to the greatest sin in the experience of God's people in the Old Testament, the single greatest sin. And if you know your Bible, you know that sin was the sin of the golden calf, the idol that they made. After God delivered them from Egypt, brings them out of slavery, brings them to himself to be his people, gives them the Ten Commandments, says you shall have no other gods before you. This is it. It's, it's Israel and God. It's this amazing relationship. What did they do? Exodus 32. They went. They got tired of waiting for Moses. And they, they went and they took all their gold and they made a golden calf and they began to worship it. It's the greatest sin of idolatry in the Old Testament. It's like the lowest moment in Israel's history right there. And God should have just wiped him out, but he didn't. He didn't wipe them out. Why didn't he wipe them out? Instead, God revealed his glory to them. He revealed his character to them. And what's quoted here in Psalm 103 is directly from Exodus 34. So let's just read that real fast. Exodus 34. In the midst of the whole golden calf thing, and Moses is just fried. He's just so sick of the people, and he's sick of this whole thing, and he just can't take it anymore. And he says an amazing thing. He says, God, please show me your glory. Like, I could just go on if you could just show me your glory. I just want to see more of you. Please, Lord, show me your glory. How can I go on unless I see your glory? And God says, okay, I'll do it. Can't show you my full glory, but I'll, I'll show you what you need to see of my glory. Moses is like, oh, awesome. I get to see the glory of God. So now we have the greatest revelation of the glory of God in the Old Testament. It's right here. It's amazing. Let's read it. Psalm 34, in verse 5, The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation and Moses quickly bowed his head and worshipped. Now, that's, those are the words that are quoted in Psalm 103. You'll write, you go back and read it. You'll see it over and over again. Oh, that whole passage is quoted in that psalm. 
in the memory. And we're intentionally taken back to this point because what the psalm is trying to tell us is the glory of God, the very character of who God is. Now, when you get to the end of that, it says, you know, God will not clear the guilty. Some people are freaking out. What do you mean he won't clear the guilty? That doesn't sound very good. Okay, we'll get there. But I want you to notice that the bulk of this revelation of God has to do with God's mercy, compassion, steadfast love, patience, care for his people. That's the revelation of the glory of God. When we studied this in Myanmar, I told the people, we're going to see the glory of God revealed right here. And I read this passage and I said, where was the glory of God in that? And they all looked at me like, I don't know. (laughs) Why? Because you expect the glory of God, a flash of light, a peal of thunder, fireworks, the glory of God. God said, no, this is my glory. My glory is my character. It's my character. And you know what heads the list of the qualities of God's character? This is God's own definition of himself. What heads the list is the word mercy here. The word mercy in verse 5, verse 6. The Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The word mercy, also translated compassion in our Bible. In fact, in Psalm 103, it's the same Hebrew word, but it's translated compassion. Think about this for a minute. Just pause and just think. The number one quality of God's character when God describes himself in the Bible, when he reveals his glory, the number one character of God's glory is compassion. You just just to start right there. That is the most earth-shaking truth that I can think of. The word compassion, an intimate, personal caring. That's what it means. Intimate, personal caring. It's used in the Bible both of the love of a father and a mother. In fact, that word compassion comes from the Hebrew racham, which actually means the womb. It's actually, it's a description of a mother's love for her child. Also used of a father's love. This is the glory of God. This is the character of God. This is who God is. Years ago, I was at some kind of a church function at someone's house, and there was all the little kids were there, and my kids were there. They had a swimming pool in the back. And I was freaked out because, you know, my kids, they're, they're just running wild. It's like just, the thing was just out of control. And, and I'm worried the whole time about the pool. And so the entire time, I have my eyes on my kids. People are talking to me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, sure. But uh, see, do you see the kids? One, two, three. And there they are. Couldn't take my eyes off my kids. I was watching them like a hawk because I care. I have this personal, intimate, caring connection to them. 
And after the event, I felt like the Holy Spirit just whispered in my heart, and, and God said, that's, that's how I watch you. That's, that's exactly how I watch you. In fact, if you being evil know how to love your children like this, then how much more do I love you? This is who God is. This is his compassion. This is how he feels about you and about me. And I can say that as a generality or I can tell you a story. I can tell you the memory of God's people. I can go back to Exodus and they go, That's, that happened to them after the greatest sin of all. There's another word in this list and it's the word steadfast love, the Hebrew word chesed. Steadfast love. It means a committed, loyal, faithful kindness that will never end. And that's who our God is as well. This is the glory of God. Now, when you go back to Psalm 103, let's go back to Psalm 103. You're going to see these terms over and over again. In fact, in verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow in anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is. Verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You get it? He's telling us who our God actually is. When I was in Myanmar, one of the questions that was asked from Pastor Timothy, he said, you know, in Myanmar, people assume anything bad that happens to them is because they've done something wrong and God is angry with them. Like everything, every single thing that could possibly go wrong in your life, it's always because God is angry with us because we've done something wrong. You got to think about the, the context, right? This is a Buddhist culture, 98% Buddhist. This is like the the water that they swim in, it's karma time. It's karma culture. So even Christians, they grow up in this culture and they hear the gospel and they follow Jesus, but deeply ingrained into their thinking is retribution, karma, that no matter anything that goes wrong in my life, it's because God is angry and he's punishing me. And he said, what should we do? How should we teach our people? And my response was, teach them to know the character of God. They must know the character of God. Because the character of God as revealed in the scriptures is not the character of God as revealed in Buddhism. It's not the same thing. This is the glory of the gospel. This is our hope in who God actually is. And it makes all the difference in the world. That was answer part one, but there was an answer part two. There's actually one more thing that needs to be said. Do you notice the phrase, the fear of the Lord, that appears? So three times it talks about the fear of the Lord in this. You'll find it in verse 11, 13, and 17. 
Verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And he will repeat that three times. Now, there's, there's something that has to take place in the human heart. It's an attitude thing. The fear of the Lord means reverence before God. It means a humble heart before the Lord. It means that we can't have a high, proud attitude before God in our sin. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord and actually repent of our sin. Now, here's, here's the thing that happened back in Exodus. I'm running out of time, so I've got to summarize the story for you. But when the golden calf thing happened and the people sinned and God was angry and Moses was angry and the people were freaking out, and God says, I'm not going to go with you guys anymore. It's over. I'm, I can't handle this anymore. And the people freaked out. And you know what they did? It says in the Bible, they took their ornaments off. They took their ornaments off. Really? What is that? I have to read it to you. Let's just read it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Exodus <coughs> 33 and verse, let's see here. Oh, there it is, four. When the people heard this, God says, I'm not going to go with you anymore. The people heard this disastrous word. They mourned and they no longer put on, no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people stripped off their ornaments. <laughs> what is that? It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of humility. When they're dancing around the golden calf, they didn't have, they had their ornaments on, you know. They're like decked out for the party. This is awesome, everybody. We're, you know, heck with God, we're doing our own thing. But now they've taken off their ornaments. They're like, oops. Hey, we blew it. We blew it here. It's that humble heart before God that comes and says, I need God. I've sinned. I need the Lord. And that's, that's the only difference. That releases <clears throat> the forgiveness, the healing, the blessing of God. That's the way it works. You know what's really fascinating is that even the forgiveness of God can lead to the fear of God. Did you know that? It says in Psalm 130 and in verse 4 that with God there is much forgiveness so that you might be feared. Which comes first? When you really know the character of God, it's going to make you soften your heart and come before him. That's what happened to David. I heard about a, a man in Africa who was going to a church and he was kind of new at the church and called himself a Christian, but he wasn't really living for the Lord. In fact, he was having an adulterous affair. The pastor found out about it. The pastor went to this man. He's like, what are you doing? You can't do this. You're, you're having this affair, and you're calling yourself a Christian. And the guy said, no, no, it's no problem. 
This is just what I'm going to do. And so the pastor wisely said, well, let me ask you a question. What would you do if your wife committed adultery? And he said, oh, I'd kill her. I'd kill her. And he said, well, what do you think God should do to you? And this guy said, well, he'll forgive me. That's his job. <laughs> That's not taking your ornaments off. <laughs> he'll forgive me. That's his job. That's not humility. That's not the fear of the Lord, you see. So in this, in this equation of who God is, there's only one requirement on our part, and that is that humble heart that comes to God and that seeks his love and seeks his forgiveness and adores him for the glory of his true character. And so with that, I want to turn our thoughts to Jesus. Let's turn our thoughts to the Lord. Speaking of remembrance, we'll come to the Lord's table in a few minutes. Jesus said that when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Remembrance. Because it's in our memory that we find God. You find God in memory of your own experience, your own life story, places you've seen God show up, your own testimony. You can search your memory. You can find God in that. But sometimes you need to go further back even than that. We go to the testimony of Scripture and we go, what is the remembrance of God in the New Testament, in the Gospel, which is the premier point of remembrance for Christians? Jesus took the bread and broke it and he said, this is my body given for you on the cross. He took the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for forgiveness of sins on the cross. He said, this do in remembrance of me. Now, if you come with a humble heart, adoring God for his character put on display, his glory put on display, not just in the book of Exodus, but now in Jesus, his compassion his steadfast love, his amazing grace in Christ. This is the pathway to prayer and to praise in our lives and to faith in our lives because now it anchors us to the reality of who God actually is in our lives. And it's profound. And don't you have to say, bless the Lord? Oh, my soul. And he says, not just oh, my soul. You know what he says at the end? He says, angels, all, everything, everything in the universe ought to bless the Lord because this is astounding. So let's have the worship team come forward and we'll prepare our hearts to come to the table of remembrance. And I want to remind you that when you come to the table... We do this in memory of Christ and his sacrifice. It's an expression of faith. Now, does it, you don't have to come. It's, it's totally voluntary. But if you do come, you're expressing your faith in Jesus, like Jesus died for my sins. This is amazing. And, and I claim that for myself. You don't have to jump through any hoops to come. You don't have to have a certain level of theological knowledge to come. You don't have to have a life free from sin to come. You don't have to do anything to come. 
except for have a humble heart that says, I love Jesus and I love what he's done for me and I want to put my faith in him. And so if that's you this morning, then I encourage you to come to the table. Take the bread and the cup, go back to your seat. After a song, I'll come back and lead us in a prayer together. Father, bless our time now. And Lord, we bless you. We bless you, Lord, and we choose now to forget not, Lord, all your benefits. We choose now, Lord, to remember the greatness of who you are. We choose, Lord, to look at you, Lord. We, we've seen our own sin, Lord. We've seen our own frailty. We are like grass that perishes, Lord. And so now we want to look up from ourselves and to look at you, to look at your throne of grace, Lord, of compassion, of steadfast love, and to rejoice, Lord, with overflowing hearts in the goodness of God through the gospel of Christ. So bless now as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.